Welcome to the Inspirational Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Donna Jones, and I'm excited today because we have the CEO of VZ, uh, Tom Vanderloop. Tom, Tom's got a wonderful mission. His mission is to leave the world in a better shape than it was when we were born, which says a lot. He studied history, law, and politics in Leiden in the Netherlands and, at free, and also science, uh, political science in, in Paris. Yeah, I studied, I studied in, in Leiden, the Netherlands, and uh, in, in Paris, and also in Berlin. And I ended yeah. up, I stayed in Berlin. Tom is the founder of VZ, which is a financial service company that offers customized mortgage solutions for a highly educated customer. He's also, this company is also in the bucket list, Corporate Rebels, made up for innovative companies working with extremely innovative approaches to management. So what I love about this conversation today is, first of all, it's in the financial sector. Secondly, it's a purpose-driven entrepreneur I'm talking to. Third, we're talking about innovation, and that those combinations are, are make it really interesting. So, Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you much for having me. Let's jump into what's the story of your journey, your own evolution in bringing your company from startup to where it is today. Why did you create Visi the way you did? It's actually an interesting story because we are not a startup bootcamp formation. We, uh, I'm one of the four uh, co-founders and we used to work together in a corporate environment that was a financial planning uh, company. It was also a listed uh, company, a German company. And uh, I was responsible with my colleagues to build up the company in the Netherlands. It was a subsidiary. And then at a certain point, the, the company in Germany decided that they didn't want to be active anymore in foreign countries and then decided to close down those subsidiaries. And then actually we became, by accident, we became entrepreneurs. So, and then we just said, okay, what shall we do? Shall we just search for another job? And then we said, no, we really liked it and we were really successful in building up the subsidiary. And I said, okay, let's just do it together. And uh, that's why we became um, uh, entrepreneurs ourselves. I love the accidental entrepreneur moniker. I think that there's many of us that have started that way. There was not a, no plan to do it, but there you are, you're in it. You might as well go. So it's fun too. You know, in terms of your own evolution though, when you started that, you were in a particular headspace, you know, you're mentally, you were in emotionally, you're in a headspace. What have you noticed has evolved for you, you know, in the course of building up busy? I think, um, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm 51 now. So, and we are building Visi now for nearly 10 years. And uh, and I think that on the one hand, you have this experience of, of doing, let's say, building a company again. So we're just doing it for the second time, but now we are the only of the company. And then there's a kind of reflection going on of what, what did we like doing in the past and what could we do better or differently? And then the first thing was that we said, okay, it's interesting to build a company. And it's also interesting to do it successfully, but we uh, something was missing. And uh, that's what nowadays is called purpose. And we said, okay, it should have, should have a kind of cause. So, I mean, the financial industry is a difficult industry. So I would say the way the financial industry treats society is, uh, is really, really difficult. There should be kind of responsibility, especially for, from the financial sector, because it's such a decisive sector. It's a kind of kind of infrastructural uh, sector, and then and then we said, okay, we should just try to change the financial industry, and we said, okay, how are we going to do this? On the one hand, we said 
the, the advice which is given just should be much better in general. It should be that you, if you advise somebody that 25 years later, you still can, let's say, have the idea that you help your customer in an excellent way. And if you talk about mortgages, that means a client never should have any problem paying the, the, the payments of, of the mortgage. And that's, and that's from our financial planner DNA. So a financial planner has a relational attitude to financial products and not, and not an attitude, let's just sell something and I don't care about the customer anymore. So it's a, it's, it's a relation type of business. So that was one part. And then we said, okay, okay, also this whole industry should be changed in a way that if you talk about, let's say, other industries, if you go to a supermarket and you buy a product, then you just turn it around and you, you just watch what is in this product. And you also, let's say, accept as a customer or want as a, as a customer that you know exactly where it comes from or this is a green product or... And that's also something which is missing. So if you talk about mortgages, you clients don't ask where does the money come from and afterwards where does the money go to if you just talk about the subprime crisis for instance so and we think that it's very strange that on the one hand it's one of the biggest decisions somebody somebody takes in his life uh, but people don't come to you as an advisor and ask where does the money come from i guess for my for my mores or where does it go to afterwards uh, so that has to change and the third thing which we added was if you just think about what is the big and pro biggest problem in the world, it's probably climate change. So this whole idea of that the whole financial industry should be much more sustainable, that's the third part of the, of the purpose. So it should be, especially if you talk about mortgages, it should be much, much more sustainable in the way we, uh, we treat our globe, so to say. Interesting. Now, I know that... Vizzy has translated the concept of human-centered in companies into reality. What does that look like? Yeah, the funny thing is that, uh, let's say, although we, we didn't intend to start as entrepreneurs, we still are very entrepreneurial. So, And entrepreneurs, I think, or we think that people who start companies, the main driver to start companies is that people are just wanting to do it themselves. So... Often they say, okay, I have a better idea or I, don't, I didn't get the chance to do something in a bigger environment. And then the people just say, okay, okay, I will just show them I'm able that this business idea will succeed. The funny thing is that when entrepreneurs grow companies and companies get bigger, then they also start to micromanage their own people. Although their initial starting point was not to be micromanaged by people. So we said, okay, on the one hand, I think we are not going to be very happy if a company becomes bigger and we become managers. We want to stay entrepreneurial. And that was also the idea, okay, let's try to, to avoid becoming managers and try to treat those people who are, let's say, entering our company, treat them as, as we would like to be treated ourselves and um, don't don't start to micromanagement uh, them. So, and it means, let's say in practice in, in the longer run that if you have, for instance, teams, you just give them their own authority or possibilities to decide how the work has to be done. And then you're, you're let's say, talking about self-organization and something like that. But that the beginning was just, we don't want to be micromanaged, so let's just not micromanage the people we hire. Yeah, very simple principle in that sense. 
And I do hear, I do hear a hint of the golden rule in there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's talk about that while we're, while we're on that. So, because treating others as you would like to be treated is, is a core, I think it's a core guiding decision-making principle, one, one that you can, it applies everywhere. Yeah. Where does it apply in, in uh, apart from, from how you treat employees and how employees work together, you know, in terms of the, uh, of teams, how else do you apply that, that rule and, and what difference does it make to the quality of these relationships and decisions inside? Actually, it doesn't matter what topic it is. So if you just talk, for instance, about the hierarchy of principles in our company and you talk about multi-stakeholder strategy, then let's say the basic structure is that we say you have the purpose. We're a purpose-driven company and that's the part we, um, we just discussed. And then we said, okay, what's the most important stakeholder that are the people who work in our company. That's, that's what we call people first. And that's, and that's also uh, the goal, a golden rule principle. So I would say everybody who works in the company want to be really treated well because you go there every day. You spend the biggest part of your life you're spending in a company. So you just want to be treated well by the owners of the company, by your colleagues, uh, also by your clients, by the way. And then, then the, the next step is that we say, if people are treated well, and that's also something, for instance, which uh, Richard Branson tells uh, again and again. If you treat people well, they will treat their customers well. And uh, if they treat their customers well, uh, clients will like that. And they will, by worth of mouth, tell other people that they were treated well and they bring other people in. And then it just starts to grow automatically. And then in the end, also shareholders will be happy because the company is growing and, they, and the company is making profits. But that's... That's the way it has to be done and not the other way around. So it doesn't start with let's try to earn as much as money and then just squeeze other people out. It can be a client. It can also be partners, for instance. So it just doesn't make sense to to treat partners you want to work with on the long run. Uh, if you don't uh, treat them well, at a certain point, they will just say, okay, I'm not going to um, to work together with you anymore. So... So in the end, for a stable ecosystem, you will have to apply the golden rule. Yeah, I love that word stable ecosystem because ecosystem of relationships is really what any company is creating, whether they're aware of it or not. So you've mentioned purpose. We've talked about purpose. Peak performance in people or companies just doesn't happen without it. What, why does Vizzy's purpose, well, let's, let's name it explicitly, and why does it resonate with employees and customers? What is the magnet, you know, the attraction to that purpose? Uh, you mean by the people who work at, at Vizzy, or do you mean the clients, or everybody around? Yeah, all of it. I mean, you're, you're going to have people that are coming to the company because they think, wow, what a great place to work. I want to be there. Yeah, so there's, there's right. that side of it. And then the customers are going, well, they, do, do the customers look at, the, at Vizzy and go, you know, what is this company? This is not behaving like a normal financial services company. It's who, who are these people? And so you're really just, you know, so it's a big question in that sense. Yeah. If you, for instance, talk about uh, the clients, which probably also for people who listen to the podcast is interesting. We just have it on our website. So everybody who goes on our website sees this kind of, it's kind of, we call it the Vizzy circle and start with the purpose. And then it says client seconds. And that's for a company who is business to consumers is, is a thing to do because it, it means that everybody, every client which goes to our website sees, oh, I'm second, I'm not first. Uh, and nowadays it always means, always uh, every company says, okay, no, it's clients first and it doesn't matter 24 hours, seven days a week, et cetera. And that's, and that's not the case. And the funny thing is that 
when you do this kind of stuff and you put it on the website, you're always a little bit scary. So will our clients complain about it? But exactly the opposite happened. And in a way, if you think about it, it's also normal that this happens because all those people who are clients, they are people working at other companies themselves. And 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 if you just reflect on that, those people who go to their jobs every day, they also want to be treated well. So the funny thing is that they say, I really like this approach. And if you just take, for instance, numbers, because... A lot of people always say, no, it's about numbers and can you can you prove that that concept works? We never have to to arrange uh, external recruiters or, or other stuff. Uh, 50% of the people who join the company uh, are referrals of people who work at VZ, 50%. Then, uh, then 25% are former clients and then 25% finds us in a way let's say, like listening to podcasts or reading articles, etc. That's the way it works. But nobody is hired in another, in another way. So it's, it's, it's also, it doesn't matter if you take just clients doing word of mouth, but you can also see it, for instance, on our Trustpilot skill. I think we have 4.9 on a scale of five. So, so it just means if you give advisors or people the freedom to care about their clients, they just think in a different way. So they search for solutions. And, and if there are, aren't a lot of rules in a sense that people are not allowed to search for the best solution, people will search for the best solution because they just want to do their work in the best possible way because they want to have positive feedback of their clients. People who work in a company, they don't, they don't want to get bad feedback of clients. They want to get positive feedback of clients because they want to go to their work the day afterwards again and get positive feedback of their clients. Yeah, it's the ripple effect. I mean, that's, yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful thing because it just it is based on, on how systems actually work, emotional resonance, emotional ripple effects. So and, and especially, for instance, if you are an advisor, and I mean, I mean you, can, you can raise salaries, et cetera, but when somebody calls you or if you advise somebody and he says, okay, I, I want to be advised by you because my colleague told me excellent stories about your service. I mean, that's something where, where, where people get motivation from. Yeah, absolutely. Do all the employees, the, the incoming people turn out? I mean, is there typically, if, if people are drawn to your, to your culture and to the way you're getting work done internally, how, how does it usually work in terms of fit? We hire for culture and not for skills. Eh? That's the that's the that's the topic a lot of people probably know. And there are there are let's say different different multiple aspects of this. It's a decentralized decision. So just to take a very simple example. If you have a team of four people, uh, those four people they will decide who will join their team. That doesn't mean that other people in the co- in the company don't don't talk to those people who uh, want to enter the company. But if somebody of those four people has a veto, somebody doesn't start. That means everybody bought, bought in to this person and will say, okay, we would like to have you on the team and we'll support you to make you successful. And as long as the person has the positive attitude, it is even not, not decisive how fast somebody becomes successful. And then there are, because the question always is, and afterwards, it's not about the coaching, it's about what do you do if there is not a fit? 
And because of, of the fact that, that the team decided together to hire this person on the team, you have a kind of psychological effect which is going on. So people support the new colleague and only if the attitude of the person, so if the cultural fit is not there and you would say, with, we always ask with the knowledge you have now of your colleague, would you hire this person or not? And if the answer would be no, with the knowledge I have now after, after three months or half a year, and we wouldn't hire the person, then it's time to discuss this. But, but the, if somebody who enters the company also feel this, so if you enter a team and everybody is very supportive and you just find out that it was not the right company you wanted to work for, or you, you, you thought, I thought mortgages or mortgage advice is very sexy and, and you think afterwards it's not, you don't like it at all, then it's also not a problem to say after three months, to be quite honest, I was, I was very fascinated by the company because I like self-organization and I liked purpose and you're such a cool bunch of people, but I just don't have anything with the product itself. And that's something which, which for instance, turned out to be a problem because we became more known as a company and we were number one great place to work. And then we just saw that people were entering the company who, 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 who liked the company a lot, but I didn't think about what we were doing every day. <laughs> so, so we just had some, some hires who just said after a couple of weeks, to be quite honest, you're a great company, but I wanted to do, do totally, something totally different, which is, which is totally fine. Because the, the, only, the only problem is for a company, if you lose people who are very experienced, if you put it from a revenue perspective, if you lose people who have very high revenues, but it's not a huge problem to lose people after a couple of weeks, then you can just adjust your recruiting process. And then for instance, we started to, to, um, to implement that people who wanted to start for us, that they just work one day at our company. And then we also had people who said, okay, excellent recruiting process, but after having worked here for one day, hmm, it's not my company, sorry. So that, that, really, that really works out uh, pretty well. So if you talk about A players or B players, we really would say that of the 40 people we have now, we would hire every person again. So that's, that's, not, a, that's not a big issue. What I like about the the adaptation, you, you know, I mean, first of all, you've, you've adapted your recruiting process. You talk to some companies and they've got this excruciatingly long recruiting process and hiring process. And then in the end, they still hire the wrong person, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's through bias or through. And what, what I love about how you've done this is you've made the adapt, you know, you've looked at something. That, okay, this is popping up. That's emergent. In other words, let's, let's work with that and, and try something else. And so that capacity to experiment is fantastic. Yeah, and we go also rather broad. So we don't care. I mean, those those people have a university background, but we don't care what their university background is. So we have two people who have studied philosophy. We have somebody who was a teacher for for Greek and Latin at a school. Uh, we have somebody who uh, uh, did um, transportation technical study. Uh, we also have people who studied economics. I mean, I'm a historian. So we don't care about that at all psychology and this kind of stuff so it's very broad it's a little bit uh, comparable with let's say management consultancy and then we just just see if it fits and you get a you get a much higher diversity because somebody who studied greek and latin 
things totally different than uh, than somebody who studies physics or economics. So it also the quality of your team is also much better, and on the uh, the advisors are all uh, educated internally. So uh, of the twenty advisors, we have nobody ever has worked at the bank and done done advice at the bank. So that's all uh, so-called homegrown. Which brings a really fresh outlook to customers. It brings a really fresh, I mean, it's a very, it's a high level of commitment to enter into a completely foreign territory in terms of knowledge and, and to pick that up and run with it. So I think that would also be something that would add to the attraction to the company. Yeah, and it's also, for instance, um, you try to avoid mental barriers because let's say the product productivity we have and the client's uh, rates we got get are so so far away of what is normal in the whole financial sector because we just don't compare and we don't have people who say now average uh, is excellent uh, if you t- t- uh, take for instance NPS and this kind of stuff because mm-hmm. we just don't we just don't know and I mean perhaps we can find out and we know by by analyzing what what let's say uh, the the trust pilot notes are or the NPS are of banks but we just are not interested and we don't have people walking around in our company who say but when I was working at that bank uh, this was already a great uh, let's say remark or that was a great let's say level because we just we just don't know it and we just don't want to know it what what our competitors are doing maybe I'm wrong but it sounds like to me what that means is you're not looking for these past practices you're not looking back you're looking forward all the time no, and it's also, I mean, if you talk about benchmarking, it doesn't make sense to benchmark in the financial sector because, I mean, if you talk, for instance, from a technical point of view, you should take technical companies. If you talk, take for about online, then you have to take, uh, uh, let's say, e-commerce companies. And, and if you talk, for instance, about client retention or the way you treat people, you better can take hospitality industry or a good restaurant uh, I mean, if you enter a restaurant and, uh, and and somebody brings you to a table, just compare this when you go to a bank. I mean, and then and then and then just see the amount of money you spent in a restaurant, and then see the amount of money you you spent the next ten years on the mortgage. So it should be totally the other way around. But but the guy in the Italian restaurant treats you very well, and and brings you to the table. And if you enter a bank, um, you really have to search for somebody who will help you. So. So it's, it's, it's much better to just think what would, the, what would be the appropriate approach and then just search for, for the sector or the example, which, uh, which you would like yourself as a customer. Eh? It's exactly the same again. Yeah. I love the diversity, by the way. That's kind of a core thing for me. So I, lo- I love seeing that. You've also done something innovative with salaries. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's also something which evolved, uh, but our our approach is always first to um, to ask the question, what would be the optimum uh, or the optimal solution, and then search for research, and then and then just start first in theory to develop the model, and then then just try to implement it. And and our starting point was, we took the idea of what is the best or highest performing team, and then we found this Aristotle approach of Google. And then we found Amy Edmondson with psychological safety. But you can also take Maslow Pyramid. And so there are more, or Daniel Pink, yeah, if you talk about purpose and um, autonomy and mastery. So there are, there are a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of scientific stuff around, but it all comes to the point that 
the best performance you will have in the team is when really people have a safe environment and have the possibility of being vulnerable and just just exchanging together what is the best fit uh, if you talk about what person should do what in the team and and, and that's a kind of process so you can't say it's a, it's, it's a static process and you know from the beginning what would be the solution now people have to find out together who is suited best for what part of the job and then together you find out uh, how to solve things together as a team, and that's and that's also the outcome of the of the of the Google Aristotle project. That psychological safety is the main thing. And then we said, okay, if psychological safety is the main thing, just let's try to get rid of any financial implication which could be there on the outcome of the whole stuff of, the, of the, the performance of the team. And then we said, okay, there should be any financial implication. That means fixed salaries, no bonuses. And people who are interested in bonuses, eh, bonuses are counterproductive. Eh, that's uh, the well-known uh, video of Daniel Pink eh, called Drive. Uh, so get rid of the bonuses. And then we said, also, let's try to get out the whole idea of salary raises because let's say if people who are behaving well get a salary raise and others don't then you have you still have on another level exactly the same effect so if you have 10 people working in the team for the four let's say seen best people will get a salary increase four are not and two have to leave the company then you still have exactly the same effect which you have also when you talk about bonuses. So we said, okay, let's just try to to uh, dive a little bit deeper. And then we ended up just just saying, okay, let's just assume everybody is doing its, its best for the for the team performance. So just just let's say assume we can raise everybody's salary every year automatically. And then we took a deeper dive into performance issues and we said, okay, if if you have an underperformance issue, then you're not going to solve this by not paying somebody or or just paying less that's not solving the problem that's a thing about coaching or or just seeing in the team who is doing what and then and then we also found out that for instance peer pressure is is the strongest pressure it's not it's not the team leader who comes by every quarter and says okay let's let's talk about your performance so it's it's a daily business topic and we just found out that as long if everybody has the same attitude, people are able to solve those stuff together. They have the highest outcome. And then we ended up just by saying, okay, just let's let assume we raise the salaries every year and the performance issues, let's just see if teams are able to solve them, those issues themselves. And this turned out to be totally right. What I like about that, Tom, is that, first of all, when you see the way companies run, they typically put in things that distort human behavior. So that's where the, you know, the, the bonuses or the, or, you know, the, all that stuff that manipulates behavior. And what, what I appreciate what you've done is you've kind of stripped it down and say, okay, let's not create inequality through our, through our, um, our incentive process, but just make it, just assume that, that everybody's naturally inclined to go to work and do the best they can. That's just, that's so wonderfully simple principle. 
Yeah, it's uh, this uh, X and uh, X and I, or is it called uh, theory? I, I forgot the name. I think it's from the 50s or something. Like that. So it depends also what kind of attitude do you have. So if you think that people come to their jobs every day to do the best they can, I think that's the starting point. People don't want to come to their work and then they don't want to be unhappy because it's it's their life. So uh, it should be, it's very strange to think that way. But but there are also some some things we added. So we said, for instance, if we just take a normal salary curve, uh, depending on, on, on somebody's background, and then we take the highest quartile, uh, which means that we're not going to tell them we are such a great company and we'll pay you less. And it also often happens. No, we're, we really are honored or, or, or blessed by those people who want to bring themselves to work every day. Uh, that they are willing to do so, so we should honor this. Uh, so we say, okay, we allow you, or in the salary model, we are in the biggest quartile. And we, we also said, if you have the impression that it's not the case, you can just tell us, we will check it and we will adjust the salary. And that's what, for instance, twice happened in one team. It's our credit department where there, are, there were just not enough people. And then we adjust, we, we made an adjustment uh, of, I don't know, 100 or 200 euros for, for those four people in the team. And the funny thing is that the feedback of the people was not that they were so totally amazed by the amount of money in which they got extra. No, they said, because those people are very experienced people and they worked in other companies, they said, uh, the most important thing was that we just did it. So it was a promise which was kept. And that's something where you just where we just found out because the guy was telling me he just he had more or less tears in his eyes and he said it's not about the 200 euros I get more but I have I've heard so many stories in the past because I worked in other companies and they always told great things but they never acted on that but it's also something you can't just copy this kind of salary models because the main thing behind this is always a kind of ethical behavior just to do what you tell what you what you do and not tell something and do and do something totally different because that's the problem in most cultures well it's actually the the problem in in, in hence the climate change conversations it's not about the talk it's about getting things done yeah. and staying in. so it's actually applying it so yeah excellent example and really interesting way of how that feedback came back to you as well what i'd like to do is tap into your personal experience, if we may, for a second, because I'm pretty confident that, that every founder of a company has at one point or another had an epiphany, you know, a wake up call, something that sort of says, especially a purpose driven entrepreneur, something that says, you know, I need to be different or move differently through the world. Would you be willing to tell us what yours was? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's something, let's say, in the past for a long time I never talked about. And then uh, I found out in conversations, if it was in interviews or et cetera, that in, uh, in the end, uh, people were always, I wouldn't say digging, but they were interested and say, okay, where, where does it come from? Where does this drive come from? And when you talk to a lot of purpose-driven entrepreneurs, in most cases, there is something in their lives which, which made this change. I, I was uh, very lucky. Um, and I will call this lucky that I was very sick when I was 20. So I had cancer and I had a chance of surviving uh, it with 20%. So I'm, 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 I'm really lucky I'm still there. 
I'm also very lucky that I was raised in the Netherlands and they have excellent hospitals. So in most other countries, I wouldn't have been there anymore. And, and that gives you another approach to, uh, to things. It, it gives you also a kind of mental freedom. So for me, uh, the last 30 years have been extra time. It's like game over and then the referee says, now you still have some minutes extra time and you still have the chance of winning the match. And, and this is more or less how I approach uh, life. So when I, when I brush my teeth every morning, I say, okay, I have another day. Let's, let's, let's do something. And, and that's what I try. But it's, it's, it's also a kind of mental freedom because if you really are in a shitty situation, I always have the kind of automatic mechanism where I say, okay, it can't be worse than what I have already experienced, uh, which is also a kind of philosophical thing. Because if you, if you take Nietzsche, the German philosopher, he just says, it's about your why. So it, you compare your why with, with this kind of existential experiences. But uh, for instance, in the US, uh, Viktor Frankl is very well known eh, about mm-hmm. this. So people who survived concentration camps and then thinking in those concentration camps what they want to do when they, when they got out, that's something which is so existential. But I, I meet a lot of people. So a lot of purpose entrepreneurs, they, they often have a kind of story. And then because I have a kind of connection and I, and I feel that there is a kind of story, I often find out pretty fast. Also by telling my story, because if I tell my story, the other person often tells her or his story automatically as a kind of a reciprocity. Uh, but that's, uh, that's my story. And what I love about it is that it removes the... There's a really, I think, a really unconscious pressure on people to prove themselves socially. And when you're faced with your mortality in a very, at a very early age as you, as you were, that is no longer relevant. You just don't care anymore because what matters is you're here, you're alive, and what do you do with the moments you have? Uh, so I think, you know, I think that's, that's um, pretty pure. The problem nowadays is also that, let's say, I mean, I, I've a histori- uh, I'm a historian. So if you just watch old paintings, eh, for those who uh, now and then uh, go to a museum, you often have this skull on, on, or, or flowers. Uh, it's a vanity, it's called. So, so, for instance, in the Middle Ages, people had their skull on their, on their desk just to be remembered that it's not about it. There's no eternity. That's memento mori. So think, which means think that you also will be, that you will die. And that's something we nowadays don't want to be confronted with. So we don't want to be confronted with death. We don't talk about it. Uh, we want to be, it's, it's forever young. I want to, I want to be forever young, eh? like, like the song. And, and that's our, how, our, our whole approach about, about the world. But if you, if you think about, you will only live a certain amount of years and, and it's not endless, then, then probably you would, you would find out earlier that it's about more than only the superficial stuff. But our modern society, also if you talk about entrepreneurs, it's about let's try to find out that we can live forever. And I think that's the wrong approach. If we would live, if we would be able to live forever, life is not life anymore. Yeah, and that's exactly where Ray Kurzweil at Google, his direction is to, you know, basically merge us, the, the singularity merges with the, yeah. with the tech. And I, I mean, I find that deeply troubling for the same reasons. So now let's just tap into your historic, a little bit deeper into what, you know, your historical, your historian experience. 
when we look at how we value contribution and people in traditional sense, in terms of business, you, you, you were valued based on, you know, showing up, being the cog in the wheel of producing your ability to produce profits, you know, with productivity, et cetera. Mm-hmm. When you look at the arc uh, of what's going on in the world today in, in, a, in a wider sense, what do you think is going to happen or what do you see going on in terms of how we value contribution, you know, human contribution? What's changing? What do you, th- what do you see is it, it, it changing from and to? Let's, let's say like, like solving the world problems or it's more yeah. about the, the, the um, what, what, what let's say entrepreneurs should do or? It can be how people, so- how, how entrepreneurs solve world problems. I mean, let, let's merge those two ideas together. It's a very difficult subject. Uh, you have, I would say, two directions. On the one hand, you have, let's say, the more, the more which comes from the American uh, culture or business culture nowadays which says, okay, there's always a technical solution for a problem. And, and, and that can be uh, Tesla or other stuff. And the other, the other thing is more, let's say, the continental European institutional approach, where you would say it always has been the state, uh, which by law solves problems. So that can be um, segregation in the US or child labor, or, but also climate change. So I think it's probably both. So on the one hand, you need people who do technical inventions. Uh, it's, for instance, if you just take about life expectancy, there's a lot of technical inventions, which which just are the reason that we live uh, twice as long uh, in comparison to 100 years ago. But on the other hand, I also think that um, that entrepreneurs should also be aware of the fact that that the regulation of a state or of our government also plays a huge role. I mean, all the main things, if you talk about voting rights, etc., uh, these were not entrepreneurs who solved this. Or if you talk about the way we build states or our courts, etc., we just did tell those people, uh, if you have a problem with your neighbor, just, just try to solve it yourself. No, we installed courts, we installed parliaments, we decided that children should be in school until a certain age we decided there's a kind of public infrastructure etc so i think we live at the moment we live in an in a world where entrepreneurs think that they can solve problems or solve the world problems but i think it should be a little bit more balanced approach and also entrepreneurs can be a little bit more modest because the state does in a sense a lot of stuff which still works pretty well especially when you look in different countries so the main things like education or healthcare systems or security or, or water supply and this 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 kind of stuff we just think that's very normal and we think that the iphone is the best inf- uh, in, invention we ever had but um, i mean if you if you if you just see that you get fresh water out of the tap every morning or that the public infrastructure works well, or we have certain kind of security. I mean, these are also things where where the state plays an enormous role. For me, I, I'm also seeing a reinvention of government, a redesign, a complete redesign of government. So if, if you, you know, because we can't, we're relying on the old thinking and it just doesn't work in, in a world that's faced with um, more of an ex- existential crisis, a humanitarian crisis on many levels. And that disconnection between nature and and human vitality is a critical one. Yeah, that's that's how I see it as well. Thank you.
Any particular tip you'd like to offer entrepreneurs or executives looking to reinvent themselves, their structure, I should say, the structure of their company? Yeah, I mean, you can always give a lot of practical advice, but I think that a lot of people do so. And with my background, I just think that um, if you are for the ne next time, if you are in a museum or as you just call on the, on the painting or, or if you like Viktor Frankl and this kind of stuff, or just, just to look into the mirror and just think, okay, my time is not endless. I mean, Simon Sinek uh, always t uh, talks about why, but I think our, our basic, very strong, deep essence of life is that we want to contribute something, but it also helps to ask, for instance, your grandparents uh, what their lessons learned are. Because people who are, let's say, very old, they're not diplomatic anymore. They just can tell the truth. Uh, they, can dis they can just tell the truth and say, okay, I would have done this differently. But it also can be, I have two, two small children. I mean, you have 10, I have 10 years. And then they are then 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 they they are not that interested in in us as parents anymore. So let be be very aware of time in general, and that can be in a family, that can be in friendships, old friendships, but it also can be in a company. And then you are back at the golden rule. So you have an enormous possibility of treating people well. And 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 that's something which I, I see as an enormous privilege as an entrepreneur that the circle of influence you have on, on other lives is, is perhaps much bigger than it would be in, in another company. And I would just say, just use this enormous privilege to, uh, to help people around. So if you, for instance, see the, the talk Innovators Dilemma, which was uh, going viral uh, a couple of weeks ago because he died, that's about... Clayton Christensen. Yeah, yeah Clayton Christensen. His, his most interesting and most 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 valuable speech probably is the one where he talks about what did you contribute to other people's lives, yeah, and th and that's the golden rule again. So, yeah. but he was a Mormon, so uh, in his person it was his religious background which uh, which brought him to that. But let's not only behave when we are very ill or when we are confronted with our our death, like. I was, for instance, but let we just behave uh, without this existential, uh, existential experience, because we're just humans. We, we are indeed. And, and I think what, what you're talking about here is that it's a, a career-defining uh, guide for making decisions. If, you know, at some point, you're going to be asked to make a decision, and the, and the question is, it, it centers back to, you know, what's my contribution to the world? What do I, what do I want to yeah. What difference do I want to make here? And, yeah, and, that, and, and that's Clayton Christensen, huh? I think that's I think that's everybody, to be honest. Yeah, but I mean, let's say, but it, that was the video which was going yeah. uh, went viral, uh, let's say, uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. But it's yeah, that's but that's Momento Mori, and that's as old as uh, history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now I'm really looking forward to us meeting up in Italy in September. We've got something called the People Revolution in Milan that uh, that is happening. We're both going. Yeah, nice to see you there. Yeah, it'll be fun. So first of all, just Tom, I want to thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Is there anything you want to add? No, I think I, uh, perhaps I talked too much and too long sentences because I'm not very good in uh, keeping myself very short. So <laughs> I hope, uh, I hope uh, it, it, it helped perhaps people and also people sometimes who are in difficult positions 
So that's why I also started to talk about it, to share this. Perhaps it gives some people also hope uh, when they uh, when they have the impression uh, they are in a shitty situation. Let's try to um, yeah to be a little bit more human and uh, help each other. And I appreciate, by the way, you, you sharing your story about your twenty, you know, your experience as a twenty-year-old, because there is a lot of adversity in the world today, and we can use it to greater effect. We can use it to, you know, rise above what we're dealing with and and really make a completely different contract with how we move through the world with ourselves. That is not a contract with society, but with ourselves in terms of why am I here and what do I want to accomplish while I'm here. And um, you know that that's that's probably the opportunity we have. Not you know individually, personally. I think you know in terms of businesses, what business can do, and and how they how they conduct themselves in light of of the kinds of challenges we face. So yeah, it's extremely exciting. Thank you very much for taking the time to to to, to talk to me and to the audience today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And we will see you in Milan in September. Thank you. You'll find some interesting pictures and diagrams of the Visi organization on the Visi website. I'm going to put that link in the show notes, so take a look at that. Thank you for joining me. My name is Donna Jones, and my work involves shifting decision-making to distributed decision-making, also providing some complexity skills for decision-makers, particularly at the senior levels, and allowing for insights to guide decisions and, and leadership as well. So give me a call if you would like to talk about both speaking and workshops, as well as uh, some of the more innovative programs we run. Thank you very much.